You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, I want to continue in a spirit of worship. I want to say good morning. I'm thankful for Matt and our worship team. I'm thankful for Michelle, who's just uh, gifted by God with energy and uh, administrative prowess. She just gets things done. And that's one of the many ways that we try to be involved in the heart of our city is by serving those who are serving in uh, capacities uh, like in schools. And so I'm thankful for the opportunity to do that. And I want to I want us to continue to think through this morning as we have uh, finally come to the end of our sermon series for the spring semester on the life of David. And so this morning, I want to start off and I want to talk about last words. It was almost four years ago, I remember hearing two final words. As my dad was uh, declining in health, I remember... The last thing that I heard him say was actually pretty basic and pretty profound. He simply said, I'm ready. He had been uh, in sort of a, a steady decline, and I was able to have conversations with him periodically. And I said, Dad, do you understand? Do you know what's happening? Do you know where you are? Do you know what's going on? And I remember that last day, he just sort of turned his face back to the ceiling, and he just sort of breathed, and he said, I'm, I'm ready. And I didn't see him awake after that in a matter of several hours later, he was gone. Now, to be completely transparent with you, not all of my dad's words were equally profound. Uh, Just about an hour earlier, he had told my buddy Kyle, who was in the room there at hospice, to go get him a blankety-blank Snickers, and together the two of them could get the blank out of there. (laughs) So... (laughs) Not quite as theologically charged as I'm ready, but uh, equally passionate, I assure you. At one point, one of the nurses was trying to spoon feed him some yogurt, and my dad and his great West Texas charm um, described with great metaphoric detail the biological substance that it reminded him of, <laughs> with great flair and profanity. And so we had to like, no, don't, now dad, that's, we don't do that, stop that, no, no, no. Let not that be your last words, dad. Now the thing is, when dad said, I am ready, it was enough. Because he had spent a lifetime dropping these little nuggets of wisdom all along the way. Preparing me to to see his life sort of in a 360 degree view. To say, "I, I know who he is, I know who he was, I know whose he is, I know where he's going. It was the perfect last words because I knew him so well because he had always been from the very beginning been in the habit been in the practice of speaking last words that's what my dad was like dad never finished the ninth grade and yet i think he was probably the wisest guy i ever met taught me a whole lot taught me a lot of the ways to not do things which i'm also grateful for but he was ready so this morning we're going to get to discuss Some last words, how to give them, when to give them. Because the practical reality is, many of us may have thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? But the way life happens and sometimes the way life ends, you might not actually get the opportunity to deliver them when and where and to whom you would like. And so it seems better 
to prayerfully consider in advance and to speak them repeatedly now all the time. So this morning, we're going to see this guy, David. We're going to end his story. We're going to conclude his narrative, which leads us to our big idea, and it couldn't be simpler. It's a single solitary word, and it goes like this. Finish. Finish. We're going to look at what does it look like to really finish. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. And speaking of finishing, it is finally time for us to conclude this series. As they say in the aviation industry, the takeoff is optional, the landing is not. And so here we finally are at the end of the spring series on the life of David, this warrior, poet, and shepherd, and king. We've been doing this for 18 weeks, if you can believe it. And it's all been preparing us for and pointing us to the ultimate David, the one who would come and would be the ultimate son of David, the Messiah. It's been a long series filled with all sorts of strange narratives that demonstrate the covenant-keeping love that God shares despite the depravity of the people that he loves. So just a really quick rundown. We started, if you can believe this, way back on January 7th in Deuteronomy 17, talking about the monarch that God would have to rule his people, the one that is to rightly resemble and reflect the rule in the realm. And the key to leading God's people is knowing God's word. That's all the way back in January 7th. And we looked in 1 Samuel 7, and we saw the wonder of God anointing the chosen instrument. We saw this David grow and begin to deepen in his faithfulness and his trust of who God is, his trust of what God said he would do. And so we see David go into battle against a giant named Goliath. We see that that whole scene uh, demonstrates that, that God is sovereign, that David, because of the faithfulness of God toward him, did not need to fear. That David points us towards Jesus, Jesus is a better David. He's a, a shepherd, warrior, king that loves his sheep. And that Jesus was a worse curse than Goliath. He became the blasphemy of all of our depravity. We got to see David flee King Saul for 10 years. And we talked about all those stories as he hid in the caves of Adullam and all those other places. We got to see him grow in wisdom and become a man of prayer. Even though he knew God's will, he persistently practiced asking God, but how? I know what you want, but how will you lead me this time? We learned that David stayed his hand several times when he had opportunities to kill Saul because David began to understand that God's will must be done God's way and that there are no shortcuts. Really brilliant lessons for us in our everyday living. We saw that as much as God has done for us, there's no payback for grace. God is a covenant-keeping God that is not interested in our sort of transactional, transactional interplay. We learned the story of Mephibosheth, that God's grace is God doing all that he can. Not just what he must, but God's grace is God doing what he can to save those who cannot save themselves. And we looked at the story, the tragic story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. And we learned that sin is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And we studied David's mighty men. These guys, these 37 dudes who were always with David in battle. And what we actually learned is as mighty as they were, that might is not our objective. Mighty is the Lord and the battle is his. 
We looked then at all of the, uh, the pomp and circumstance as David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and how frightening God's holiness can be, but that it is actually for us and that we, having received the Messiah, the ultimate son of David, we, in a sense, are walking around little arks, little boxes, little containers of God's faithfulness, his provision, his care, and his compassion. We saw all the family dysfunction in David's home and saw that while there is sin and then it is a really big deal, it is no match for the Savior and his grace. We saw David have to be confronted by his rebellious son Absalom launching a civil war and David has to flee the city and go to the east where he's confronted by even more enemies, but he gathers to himself a people where he will return victoriously and restore Jerusalem to rule. Finally, last week we talked about the process of reconstruction and we expectantly declared that one day, despite all the depravity, all the deception, that one day the government will fully, finally be on the shoulders of the anointed one. So this is all because of David pointing us to Christ. He is a better David than David. All of these old stories have been pointing us to, preparing us for the coming of the Messiah. That's how we are to read all of these great historical narratives. They point us to Jesus. Jesus himself says so. For the last time in Luke chapter 27, verse, 20, or verse 24, sorry, verse 27 of chapter 24, Jesus, as he's walking along the road to Emmaus, says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. All these scriptures are preparing those people for the arrival of the Messiah and everything since is helping us to look back and understand the enormity, the glory, and the grandeur of what God has done. Which brings us now to 2 Samuel chapter 23. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them harms himself with, uh, arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire." This is God's word, and these are David's last words. Now, last week, we uh, walked through chapter 19, and we saw all of the process of reconstruction and the beginnings of healing after a civil war. But things aren't so rosy right after chapter 19. Into chapter 20, we have this strange, long narrative dealing with the rebellion of a guy named Sheba. He is a worthless fellow, the same word, Belial. He's a worthless fellow, and he leads the ten northern tribes of Israel in yet another rebellion against David. Ah, there is just no rest for poor King David. And so Sheba gathers an army to himself, and they flee way, way, way up into the north at the farther north border, uh, what is today uh, modern Lebanon. 
And David commands Amasa, the new commander of his army, to go up and get them after three days. But Amasa drags his heels and doesn't do it. And so Joab walks back in. Joab walks in and he finds Amasa and he greets him. And the text says that he grabs him by the beard. Now see, that's a tip off. When another dude grabs you by the beard, things are about to get strange. Right? And sure enough, Joab takes his dagger and just guts him, just opens him from kidney to kidney. And the text is very graphic. Everything that was inside now comes outside. And he just leaves him by the side of the road to die. And all of the soldiers under Job, as they walk by, they look at it and they go, okay, that's gross. We got somebody, can I please get a shot back or something? That's disgusting. Finally, Joab, in all of his heartlessness, just grabs the body, throws it off to the side and covers it with a blanket and off they go. This is awesome. They go all the way up to this city where this guy Sheba is hiding and they build a siege ramp and they're about to knock it down. And this woman says, hey, hey, what are you guys doing? Don't destroy our city. We're Israel. I tell you what, how can we help? And Joab says, we're not here to kill the city. We just want to kill that guy. And the woman says, you'll have his head thrown over the wall by nightfall. I like this lady. <laughs> this, this, whoo, this lady gets things done. Sure enough, as Joab's standing there, over the wall comes this human head and it's Sheba. And the rebellion's over just like that. Ladies, I'm imagining kind of like Michelle Carr. She just gets things done. You need a human head? There you go, right? So the rebellion is put down. That's good. But then we get this strange story in chapter 21, where apparently Israel goes through a three-year drought, a famine strikes the land, and David doesn't understand what's happening. Why are we not experiencing prosperity? And so he does the right thing. He inquires of God. God, what is this all about? And God says, yeah, there's a problem. Your predecessor, King Saul, broke a covenant, and we don't do that here. He broke a covenant with the Gibeonites. Way back in the book of Joshua, these Gibeonites, when Joshua was bringing the people into the land, they got tricked by the Gibeonites and they didn't destroy the Gibeonites. They struck a covenant. I didn't like that, but the covenant stands. And Saul apparently killed a bunch of Gibeonites. And so now the land is under curse because of Saul's broken covenant. Whoa, David says, what should we do? God says, go talk to the Gibeonites and find out what they need. They go talk to the Gibeonites and they say, hey, listen, we're actually under your rule. So we don't have any rights. Uh, it's not about silver and gold. It's not that. And we don't want to like, we don't want to go in and like kill people, but you give us seven descendants of Saul and we'll deal with them. And so David rounds up seven descendants of Saul and they are executed and God receives that. It's a very strange story. And the, the curse and the drought is lifted and the bounty and the, uh, the provision returns. And then at the very end of chapter 21, we get this great little snippet that says, hey, the final war with the Philistines. These bad motor scooters from the coast of the Mediterranean mount back up, and there's still some of the big guys left, some of the giants, the descendants of the Rephaim. We think maybe some of these dudes came from uh, Genesis 6. We don't know, but they're enormous. We're told about how big some of these guys are and what their names are. One dude has six toes and six hands. Sorry, no, six toes and six fingers on each hand. That would be weird. He's not octopus. No, no, no. Six fingers, six toes, 24 in all. I remember when I was a kid thinking he had 24 on each appendage. That would have been even awesomer, but no. And how all of these guys are put down. The last of the giants of the enemies of God are defeated. David goes into battle and it says, but he was old and he was weak. And so he couldn't fight anymore. And they said, listen, you're not gonna ever go into battle with us again. You are the light of Israel. And so the light of Israel goes back, fighting no more wars, and instead he writes chapter 22, a 51-verse song that declares the excellencies, the glories, the grandeur, the marvel of what God has done. 
All of that prepares us then for chapter 23. Whereas chapter 22 is 51 verses that look back, chapter 23 verses 1 to 7 are seven verses that look forward. It is his final words. Now he's not actually on his deathbed because we know that he will say some more things later in chapter 24 and into 1 Kings as he hands the throne over to Solomon. He will say more things. He's not on his deathbed. This is his formal, final, official charge. This is David's living obituary. This is his self-eulogy. It is his final charge. So let me spend a little bit of time unpacking this. In chapter 23, verse 1, we have what I would call an accurate anthropology. David does a brilliant, wonderful sort of ascension as he's going to describe himself five ways. Five things he's going to tell us about himself, and I want you to see how they ascend, how they rise. He starts off and he says, now, these are the last words of David. The oracle, that's really sort of amazing, the neum in Hebrew. This is the prophetic utterance. He is speaking the words of God. He understands that he is writing scripture because God is speaking directly to him, the king. That's atypical, non-normative. Normally God will speak to the priest, but David is the anointed of God. He represents God to the people, and so God apparently speaks directly to David. These are the last words of David, the oracle of David. And he calls himself, the first thing, the son of Jesse. He's just a dude. He was nobody from nowhere. He's in Bethlehem, a backwater shepherd town. He was the runt of the litter, doing a nothing job. He was a shepherd, which means he smelled like sheep squeezins. This is the guy. Nothing special about him. This is who I am. He has an accurate anthropology. I know who I am. I'm just that kid, the runt, from what's-his-face. Jesse was not a known major elder in Israel. I'm nobody. But... Those are the kind of people that God loves. Do you see? The son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. It's all passive verbs here. I'm nobody from nowhere, the son of nobody, doing a nothing job, but God raised me on high. It all happened to him. David didn't do this. He didn't scheme and plot. He was anointed by God. He was chosen by God. He didn't, throw, he didn't overthrow any other kingdom. He didn't win any election. In fact, even Samuel, the prophet of God, the last judge of Israel, didn't even vote for him. <laughs> like, it can't be that dude. He's a redhead. There's no way that guy's going to be the king of Israel. Sure enough, but David says, I was the son of nobody, just a guy, but God raised me. Because you see, that's what God does. Man that God raised on high. The anointed, the word is the Mashiach. David understood that he was the one that God would use to rule his people. He was the one that God would have rightly resemble and reflect and represent him to his people. David understands that he is the one through whom God is going to provide protection and blessing and bounty and provision to his people. He says, I'm not nobody from nowhere, but God did a thing. and Now he is using me to do a thing to and through others. He realized that he was the anointed one, the Mashiach of God. And he's not just the anointed of God, he's the anointed of the God, <laughs> I love this, of Jacob. He could have said the God of Abraham. He could have said the God of Isaac. He could have said the God of Moses. He could have said the God of Joseph. <laughs> he chooses Jacob. Why? 
I think David knows what he's doing here. This is very clever. Because Jacob is the one who had his name changed to Israel because God took a grasper, a deceiver, a liar, a swindler, and a cheat, and candidly, a coward, and made him the origin of his people. God took this deceiver, this natural-born enemy, and raised him and dignified. And David says, I get it. I am the anointed, the Mashiach of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. I love this. Of all of David's titles, as he's eulogizing himself, I was nobody from nowhere. I was raised up. I am the Lord's anointed of the God of Jacob. I am the singer of sweet songs. I am the official hymnist. I am the worship leader. In other words, the most important thing about David, he says, is I love me some God. In other words, my role as an adorer, as a devotional, um, heart-sick person for the person of God, listen, super transcends my role as king. Everybody wants to be the king. It's good to be the king because, you know, you're the king. You're the one in charge. But David had been king. And it had been full of suffering and hardship and death and pain and loss and suffering. He'd been the king and found it wanting. What he wanted more and more of was that bottomless, boundless, endless well of nearness and proximity to God. The height of his identity is, I am a worshiper of God. I love that. It's the most important thing about me is how much I love my Lord. All the other things that I've done, all the other offspring, the marriages, all the other things David says, I was undefeated in battle. He doesn't mention any of that. I secured our borders. I killed a giant. Let me just say, if I'm giving my eulogy, that's what I lead with. Like, hey man, y'all remember that time? And I reach into a bag and I pull out the huge youngest head of Goliath. Like, that's what I'm talking about right there. And I still got it, y'all, so y'all step back. No, 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 he doesn't. He says, the greatest thing about me is I am a worshiper of God. It's very instructive. Well, in verse two, he's gonna tell us that he understands that he is writing scripture. This is inspired. He says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. We know that Paul, we know that Peter understood that they were writing scripture. David knows that what I am getting is the very words of God. In verse three, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Incidentally, many feel, and I agree, this is one of the clearer, faint echoes of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament. David believed in a triune God, he would never have said it that way, but he understood that there was God and that God was going to send an ultimate Messiah who would lead from his line, his lineage of David. And he understood that the Spirit of God was somehow moving and active. He never would have articulated Trinitarianism the way we do today, but I think it's here. Let me show you again. Verse two, the Spirit of the Lord, that would be the Spirit, of course, speaks by me. The word is on my tongue. The God of Israel, that would be the God the Father, the rock of Israel. We'll find other places that that is a reference to the second member of the Trinity. Would I take a bullet for this? No, but I think it's here, and David, hearing from God, is beginning to get some echoes of this. And this is what God revealed to me. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. When there is government, 
that does so in righteousness, it, replen it replenishes, it refreshes the people. When there is one that says, I will do what God would have me do, it brings blessing to the people. Because you see, anthropologically, every single people group in all of human history ever has essentially wanted the same thing. It transcends time, space, tongue. It, it trans, uh, transcends uh, political situations, climatological situations. Everybody basically wants the same thing. They want to be loved. They want to be safe. They want to be happy. They want to be cared for. And they want to be rescued when something goes wrong. But man will not bow the heart. Man will not bend the knee and say, we recognize that for that to happen systemically and consistently, it has to be done under the righteousness of God. We won't do it. No society has ever once gotten that right. Not one, ever. Sociologically, you can study it. But surely we'll be the first. Surely, we'll, we'll, we'll crack this one. No, but when there is one who is rightly resembling, reflecting his righteous rule in the realm, then the people thrive. It's like a bright sun on a clear, cloudless day. The warmth, the beauty, the brightness, the intensity, it draws you to it. You want more of it. Like a refreshing rain that brings life, you can smell creation clapping when it rains. That's what government is like when it's done under the righteousness of God. And when it is done deliberately apart from the presence of God, it'll never, ever, ever work. One, one writer put it this way, history is merely the study of Bedouin peoples moving around, building castle after castle, while the faithful of God say, it's not going to work. And sure enough, now we get involved and we do what we can, we help, we, we involve ourselves in the community, but simply trying to build enormous sandcastles is always going to be folly. But that's what one who rules in the place of God can bring. And then David says, listen, this has been my life's work, verse 5. For it is not my house stand so with God, for he has made me an everlasting covenant. This is about what God has done, what God does, not about what David has done ordered and all things insecure, for he, will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Despite all of David's dysfunction and depravity and error, he said, but God has sworn. It's not about me being morally good, not about me being upright, obeying the rules, as important as that is. It is that God has promised and he is faithful and he never fails. However, there is a different group. Verse six for it is not, or, sorry, verse 6, but worthless men, Belials, worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. There's a contrast between the replenishing of the sun and the rain versus that which is worthless and is to be thrown out. David is doing eschatology. David is saying, I understand this is how life is now, but there will come a time. There will come a time when there will be one who is armed with iron and wood and there will be judgment and that which is worthless will be cast out. So this is David's final words, charging the nation of Israel to finish because he knows that he is at his finish line. Now there's a bunch we could take from this, but just very quickly, I want to talk about this kingdom that David was leading and he was about to hand off. Just three implications of this kingdom. Number one, it goes like this. The kingdom is certain. It's certain. 
despite all the other issues that occur, the exiles from the Assyrians, the exile of the Babylonians, the Roman Empire occupying Israel, it doesn't matter. God will get it done. God, David says over and over in a very staccato sort of rhythmic burst, God's going to do this, God's going to do this, whatever God promises always comes to pass. Despite, despite all the sinning and all the, the scheming of men, God always accomplishes his perfect purpose perfectly and precisely on time. He says it over and over and over again, God's kingdom will come to pass. It might not look like we expect, might not come when we want it, but it has begun. We got a foretaste of it with, the, with David. It was inaugurated, it was initiated, it was sparked at Jesus' first coming, and it'll be fully manifest when Jesus comes again. The kingdom is certain. So we look forward to that. We know that and we trust that. Number two, the kingdom is glorious. We see it described, the, the, the bright sun and a clear sky, a refreshing rain bringing life and bounty. The description calls to us and says, man, I want that. I want that for my life. Those things will come to pass ultimately and fully. But in this life, we will still have trouble because we are citizens of the kingdom that has already begun, but it's not yet fully here. And so we get to experience life as that kingdom begins to have birth pangs and move closer and closer to the return of the king. And in this age, we get to experience what God wants for us, which is to be saved, which is to be sanctified, and which is to suffer. And to do so in anticipation of that glorious kingdom. And then, of course, the third thing, the kingdom, it is certain, it is glorious, and it is exclusive. And I know that that's not a popular passage or a popular thing to say these days, but the text makes it clear. Verses 6 and 7, there are those who will be judged. There are those of us who have already been judged at the cross in Christ. But there is as yet another judgment coming. I think even sometimes among Christians, we think there is heaven for those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then there's sort of JV heaven for everyone else who chose a different path. Sort of a, you know, uh, just the not quite as bright, not quite as fancy, eh, it's so-so. But there is not heaven B. There's not even heaven Z. There is heaven, the presence, the peace, the pleasure, the person of God himself. And then there is eternal separation from him. It is exclusive, this kingdom. And we are to be mindful of that. And we are to live with the end in mind. Always having the end in mind. I am reminded in the book of Acts, as Paul is preaching to one of the little churches up in Pisidian Antioch, he tells them in chapter 13 about David. He said, David, when he had accomplished his purpose, he fell asleep and he died. He finished now the problem is, David didn't finish well. You can go to chapter 24 and see that David, in a moment of uh, temptation by the enemy, uh, launches a census to know how many fighting men he has in Israel and in Judah. He has 1.3 million fighting men. And because of his arrogance to try to count and to take credit for it, God imposes a severe consequence. And 70,000 people die. David didn't finish well. However, the ultimate David has come. 
And he finished well. Oh, it didn't look like it. You see, he was stripped naked, beaten, nailed to a tree as the curse. And he died. But the last thing that he said was, it is finished. And so here's the gospel. Your life, my life, is not meant to be led in some pull myself up by my bootstraps and try to do my best to just get to the end of my life, not screwing up so that I don't embarrass my family. Uh Uh-uh. That's no way to live. That's not joy. You see, it is finished. I am in Christ. And despite all the ways that I invent to displease my Father, I am forgiven. In the mind of God, I am finished. The race is won. I get to take credit for the finished life of the perfect law-abiding Jesus. And so now, I finish well. Not because I have to, but because I already am. Living with the end in mind because of the past that is already certain. This is how the child of God, adopted as a son, a firstborn male, regardless of your gender, this is how we are to live, to finish because it is finished. Father, we thank you. Oh, my soul, we thank you. That seeing your son hanging on the cross innocently for something he did not do, you didn't call the whole thing off. We thank you that you received and you are satisfied. Your wrath is propitiated. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done. And we thank you for sending your spirit to now indwell every believer, to lead us, love us, guide us, and guard us in this life, that we might in turn be a blessing to others. We might be instrumental as you do for others what you have done for us. So God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that your word would sound forth, that you would lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. And for the rest of us, Father, would you give us the joy and the perspective and the wisdom all over again to know that it is finished. And we now get to live in close proximity and joy with you, knowing how the story ends. God, thank you for this study, for the life of David. Thank you for sending the greater David, and we thank you for sending him again. Until he does, Father, may this, your church, reflect you. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being with us this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand for a word of benediction. We'll be dismissed. Please go see Michelle Carr. Sign up for the Griffin Elementary Project. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause cause his face to shine upon you. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.